How many choices have you made today? Some sources suggest that the average person makes a staggering 35,000 choices per day. You chose to get up rather than hit the snooze, or vice versa. You chose cereal over toast. The blue shirt over the green one chose to turn left and go that way to work. Chose news or music over sports talk on the radio. Chose the elevator over the steps. Yeah, see what I mean? You are faced with a steady stream of decisions from the moment you get out of bed in the morning. And even though it may seem rare, small decisions can sometimes have big consequences. Well, on this Discover the Word podcast, Lisa Morgan leads the group in a series of conversations about people and their choices and six who made a difference. Do our choices really make a difference? Yes, our choices, like dominoes in a row, influence the events in our lives, in the lives of others, and in our world. In 32 verses in the book of Exodus, we're introduced to six people. One made evil choices with disastrous results. Five others made good choices, creating a powerful legacy of influence. Join us as we look at six who made a difference. And this is the Discover the Word podcast, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Glad you're here to study with Elisa and Mark DeHaan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day. Now, as Elisa said, we'll be in the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus, tracing there examples of how the choices that six people made had that ripple effect on their lives, but not only on their lives, but on the lives of others then and actually throughout history. And I think we're going to find that to be true in our lives as well. Our choices do make a difference because it is so true that we make choices in life and then those choices turn around and make us. And keeping that in mind and having a longer range perspective than just the moment may help us to make better choices that will be better for us and better for those that fall under the influence of those choices. And so, Elisa, let's get started on discovering together things about these six who made a difference. Our lives are made up of zillions of choices, one after another, stacked yeah. upon another. And I think as a result, sometimes we don't realize it, but then they, they go like dominoes and one affects another, right? So can you share a moment when you can clearly look at your life and see, oh, this choice affected this, 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 and this. This choice I made made a difference in a lot of things in my life and the lives of others. You know, I remember the choice to get married, the decision. And I remember my dad saying, Mart, how are you going to support Diane? <laughs> I was so naive. You know, I look back at it now and I think, what was I thinking? I mean, not what was I thinking in wanting to marry Di, but <laughs> so naive, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, Mart, I was drifting through life and not really doing anything. And my dad pointed me to a fairly new college that was starting a football team, and he knew I liked football, so he knew how to kind of push my buttons. And And I went to this school, which was a, a Bible college. I went there basically to play football, mm-hmm. and I came to know Christ there, and I met Marlene there, and I started getting involved in ministry uh-huh. there. And the motive was not evil, but it really wasn't very noble either. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Daniel? Yeah, that's good. 
You know, when you mentioned college, Bill, I can think back on not getting into the school that I wanted to. And that was a result of decisions I'd made in high school to not study as much as I should or get homework <laughs> in on time. And as a result of not getting to the school I wanted to, I ended up going to a different school. But because I went to that school, I was closer to Rebecca, mm. which allowed mm. that relationship to continue. And so there's a bunch of very small decisions that built on top of each other. But the way you started the question, Elisa, I was thinking a completely different way. Okay. College is more like significant. I was thinking of all the times where I make the decision to sleep in just a little bit longer. <laughs> and then the yep. whole rest of the day, I'm like late for things as a result Catching of up. that one little decision. So anyway, so that's good. there's two themes that, there. That's know. good. <laughs> that's good. So sometimes it's a huge, significant choice. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. these are life decisions that Martin Bill are talking about, but sometimes it's a daily choice. I think about, oh my gosh, we're out of milk. I'm going to run to the store. And so I run to the store and there... I happened to run into a friend I haven't seen in 10 years, you mm -hmm. know, and if I hadn't been out of milk, would I ever, you know, yeah. so it, it can be large, life-changing decisions that we see the ramifications of. It can be something small, and I think that's what that thing called the butterfly effect suggests that when mm -hmm. a, a butterfly flaps its wings in South America, it impacts what happens in Nova Scotia or whatever, you know, choices impact each other. Mm-hmm. And we're actually going to start a series today called Six Who Made a Difference. And we're looking at six individuals in 32 verses in the Old Testament, six individuals whose choices impacted life, life actually as we even know it today and, and how God's hand has played out over history. One of the individuals made not such a great choice. And the other five made interesting, positive choices. As we start off today, I want to think about what kind of impact is there from our not so great choices? And maybe even think about deeper than that, why do we make hmm. poor choices? What's the motivation behind them? You know, what pulls us away from what is right into slipping into the trenches of what is not right and even harmful. I think it's interesting, Elisa, that mm -hmm. you teed it up by reminding us, because most of what we were talking about was really positive choices, good choices, but uh, you rightly remind us that we make plenty of rotten choices too, and mm -hmm. those also have rippling consequences, yeah. and we have to deal with those as well. So uh, I think it's, even though we don't like to remember our bad choices, it's good to be reminded that when we make them, there is a cost involved. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for taking that on, Bill. <laughs> I appreciate that. We're going to start out in the first chapter of Exodus. And I think it's fascinating to remember intentionally that this is the story of Moses' birth. And it's interesting that Moses is the one who's recording it. So we've got a double layer there of perspective here. Here's the facts about Moses' birth, and here's Moses writing about Moses' birth. But let's just start it up. The first five verses are kind of a genealogy that lead us up to the present. And maybe, Mark, could you tell us what's happened in the history of God's people up to this moment? The story's complicated, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. there had been a famine, but there'd also been a family issues. Mm -hmm. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. And then what, after all kinds of problems, he had ended up second in command in Egypt. And then there's a famine. Uh -huh. And so Jacob sends the boys 
you know, down to Egypt to get food. Yeah. And so verses one through five basically go through each of those brothers. And in verse five, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. So that's the backdrop. Okay, now in verse six, we're going to get to this guy who made poor choices. Okay, now Joseph and all his brothers and that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. (laughs) They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. What's significant about that? Well, I'm smirking, first of all, because like talk about emphasizing how many Israelites there are, Mm -hmm. how many different words were used to describe (laughs) they're growing a lot, exceeding, great, filled, (laughs) like they're always big words. Good. Well, and one of the things about that that's so important, Daniel, is that, I mean, so many years before, God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make of him a great nation. Mm-hmm. And it started off with one child, Isaac. And now we see this truly great nation that God had promised that eventually through that nation, all the world would be blessed. That's it, Bill. Exactly. So here's this fruition of God's promise. Verse 8, we're introduced to this first character, the first individual who made a difference with choices. Daniel, would you read verse 8? Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay. And another translation might say, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing Hmm. came to power. See, that's more helpful because you're like, how did this guy not know about (laughs) Joseph and the rescue of Egypt? But the fact that he meant nothing, that's a lot more clarifying. That's huge. How would Joseph not meaning anything have affected this king's choices? That's what I want us to think about as we read on what he did. Verse 9, could y'all pick up 9 and 10? I'll get that. Um, So this is the king talking. He says, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Okay, and then in the next couple of verses, what does he choose to do then? How does he direct them? He makes them slaves. Okay, makes them slaves, and they build these store cities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Verse 12, though, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. (laughs) So then what happens in verses like, oh, 13 down, and you keep on reading, and let's just net it out. What does this king do? Well, he makes the choice that the only way to really limit the population of this internal enemy as he's viewing them is to start killing the babies when they're Mm -hmm. born, and specifically the male children. So he brings in the Hebrew midwives and instructs them that they're to kill the male babies uh, so that he can control the growth of this internal enemy. Yeah. This is crazy. The midwives don't cooperate, do they? Mm -hmm. They fear God, we're told. And we're actually going to look at their stories in our next conversation, because here are two women who make different choices, and their choices make a difference. Mm -hmm. But they don't go along with him. And so finally, he's kind of left to his own means. And just read that we'll net him out in the last part of his story. Verse 22, this is Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, what does he decide to do? Yeah, he commands all his people... Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Hmm. You know, it's fascinating to me how much of this is driven out of his fear. Yeah. Right? Like he's talking about all these problems that exist, but they didn't exist before. And as a result of that fear, he's been making all these other decisions. And what's interesting is that 
like what happens to us sometimes when we make decisions out of fear, it's actually making the problem worse mm. because it's not fixing the problem. They're actually growing more. Yeah. But again, it just, it started with that fear. And it's really a fear of something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. He's supposing that they might rise up against them. But to this point, there hasn't been any indication in the story that they were threatening to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. He's just assuming if they keep growing, they're going to be more than us, and they're going to join. What well, everything's worrying about something that might not even happen. Yeah, isn't that like yeah. life, though? It's like the more oh, yeah. you have, you know, the more you own, the more you think you can control for yourself. And at the expense of others, the more fearful you are. You're scared to death of somebody's mm-hmm. going to throw this thing, you know, somebody's going to grab yeah. it. And it's a lot, too, of our understanding of power. You know, his understanding of power is numbers, numbers, numbers. And that's where he goes to. And all of it goes back to verse 8. Um, read that again. I'm going to ask Mark to this time. Okay, verse 8 says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. When this king makes his choices, he's making decisions on his own without any history, without any appreciation for the layers of choices that have been made and the layers of learning that have been made. He's functioning out of his fear right now in that moment. And it makes me pull back exactly what you're saying, Daniel. How many of my decisions are made Hmm. out of my fear, out of my lack of understanding? Or can I even say out of my forgetting Mm-hmm. my God, the place of my God in my history. Elisa, I remember Tim Keller saying, doubt is being afraid that God got it wrong, <laughs> and anxiety is being afraid that God won't get it right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we live in the space between those two things. So, man, you know, if you really look at it, even out of his horrific decisions, which resulted in the death of many male Hebrew babies, Hmm. God would bring forth redemption. I mean, Moses himself would be drawn out of that river, and then God would use Moses to lead the Hebrew people out towards freedom. Okay, so fear seems to have been a major factor in the poor and wrong, devastating choices that Pharaoh made. And we can see that his choices made a difference for evil. He's the first of these six who made a difference here in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Now, in our next conversation, we're going to see two more people, two people whose choices made a difference, but this time for good. Also part of the story are two Hebrew midwives. Have you ever known a midwife, maybe used one? Okay, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between a midwife and a doula? Yeah, that's a good question. Daniel? You know, <laughs> I, I can answer this. Because my son and daughter-in-law, on the births of their kids, they used a doula, and they were throwing mm-hmm. that word around. So, Daniel, enlighten me. Yeah, Bill, just take a seat. Let me uh, explain to you the inner workings of... You guys uh, <laughs> can't imagine how far over my head you are. <laughs> um, so we have had babies in both the hospital and at home. And a midwife is usually the one that's like in charge of the birth. She's the expert. She's the equivalent of the doctor in the room. And the doula tends to be like the birth coach, the one who is very well informed and can help you make good decisions in the process, can help 
the woman get in good positions for giving birth. She also is an expert, but tends to be more on the coaching side. So we're not in the hospital, right? Well, sometimes. Actually, there's a lot of midwives and doulas mm. that work in hospitals, too. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so more pertinent to our conversation today <laughs> is the midwife than the doula. But I appreciate that distinction because in modern days, we do have both. I think back to the British series, Call the Midwife. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was set in the early 60s or so, maybe late 50s. And uh, the role of midwives was very common. The reality is that these days, you know, midwives and doctors are used in births. But we're going to look at two midwives from the Old Testament. And I think they had a little bit different role in Old Testament times. Midwives were the ones responsible to assist women in giving birth. They were the ones in the room or in the tent or over whatever situation it was who were helping babies come into our world. Okay, we're in this series called Six Who Made a Difference. And I've just picked out six people in 32 short verses in the book of Exodus, because it's fascinating to see in this compressed section of history telling by Moses himself, um, we see individuals who made choices, and their choices made a difference, sometimes for good, sometimes for not good. Yesterday, we looked at the choices of a king. And what do we see there? Anybody summarize that for us? The Pharaoh was trying to protect himself, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And he was doing that at the expense of infants, actually. He was making war on infants because the children of Israel had come with Jacob to Egypt to find food during a time of great famine, and they had stayed as welcome guests and had grown to the point that now they were seen as an internal security threat. And so out of fear, Pharaoh wants to maintain a control over how big they get. Hmm. So this is Pharaoh, and we looked yesterday at the reality in verse 8 that Joseph had meant nothing to him. He'd forgotten about the history that had come before him that he was standing on. And he functioned on his own, uh, apart from any understanding of the Hebrew God, the God of Israel. And he was afraid, and he made reactive choices to protect his turf, protect himself. And as a result, he ended up murdering a lot of babies, throwing them into the Nile or killing them earlier. And as a result, it was difficult. Now, Israel continued to grow, even though this Pharaoh had put them under slavery, they continued to grow in numbers. The king tried to use two women as his instruments for his bad choices. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want to look at today. We want to pick up the story and look intensely at these women. So let's go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, and start there. And let's read down into what he attempted to do, okay? Mark, you want to pick it up there? Okay, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. Okay, so there's just two midwives. Is that where, That's what it sounds like, isn't it? It says, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Okay, so we're just looking at two midwives, huh? That's interesting, Mart. Some people suggest that maybe these were two midwife supervisors, hmm. if you will. You know, so he would go to them, and then they would instruct all their underlings to carry out his decree. Yeah, Makes sense. It makes more sense than only having two midwives for the whole nation (laughs) because we've already seen how ridiculously big the population was coming. So to only have two midwives 
it makes a lot more sense than just that. Yeah, it does. It does. So probably that's what it meant. But the reality is that probably were supervisors over a lot of other midwives themselves. Okay, now let's read on and see how did these women respond to the Pharaoh's directive to kill all of the babies when they were born. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God. Mm. We almost need to pause there, right, before we continue. So it might have been King Pharaoh that asked them to do something, but their loyalty was to God first. And also, Daniel, yesterday we saw Pharaoh making his choices out of fear of circumstances that he Mm. was afraid might happen. Here we see them making decisions out of fear, but it's clearly a very different kind of fear. Yeah, so the midwives, we could probably even translate that as their loyalty was to God first. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. Okay, so they didn't cooperate. Instead, what did they do? Well, verse 18 says, when the king came and asked them, what's going on here? Why aren't you killing these babies? They said, well, the Hebrew women are different from Egyptian women, and they always have the babies before we get there. So the king told them to start executing the baby boys instead. Just execute, just throw them in the Nile. But these women, as you well pointed out, feared God and didn't do it. And they come back with this argument that Hebrew women are super healthy, they're super strong, or the word is vigorous in birth. And so all their babies survive. And the king doesn't really have much of a choice but to buy it. And so he throws a little bit of a fit and he goes, okay, well then let's just throw all those baby boys in the Nile. Mm-hmm. What happens as a result to the midwives? So we're going to look at this in verse 20 and 21. This happens to the Hebrews. This happens to the midwives. Just so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Hmm. Usually midwives were themselves childless. That's often why they became midwives. They had the freedom to go and serve others. What a situation that would be, because we know that women in Old Testament who were childless were not seen as favored. were removed in people's minds from having received the blessing from God. Here we see these midwives who feared God and cleverly found a way to honor God and lead their underlings, the other midwives, to honor God. And in a beautiful way, God blesses them by giving them their own children. Hmm. I'm really struck by, I think it was what you said, Daniel, that you compare the king, King Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, and therefore his choices ended up in great evil. Compare that to these two midwives who feared God and their choices brought about the multiplication of the population of Israel Hmm. and resulted in favor to them. Hmm. How does that make a difference to you and to me today to contrast those two? Well, I think part of it, Bill really hit at where he was comparing the different types of fear, because that's kind of a complicated, confusing Mm -hmm. idea. Like, what does it mean to fear God? Are we supposed to be afraid of him? And I mean, there is this extent where God is this almighty being that we can't comprehend. And in that way, it's healthy and good for us to feel small (laughs) in his Mm -hmm. presence. And so in that way, there is a healthy, like little bit of a, this is someone 
if I don't have a good relationship with that I could feel afraid of. But what we find with God is that awe in how big he is, but it's also this personal loyalty and leaning into trusting God Hmm. that is that fear of God too. So it's not just the being afraid of like Pharaoh was afraid of Israel. I think it also says something about these women and their faith because God's invisible. Pharaoh is very real and very Mm -hmm. present and very powerful. And yet they chose to trust in the God they couldn't see rather than fear the king that they could see. And I think it speaks well about them and their trust in God that they were able to trust like that. Yeah. Bill, that's so good because when they trusted in God, it didn't mean that they probably didn't fear Pharaoh. I mean, they had watched him, you know, put the Israelites into slavery and be ruthless and merciless and horrible to them. I'm sure they wondered and even worried what might he do to them as their result. But they feared God in a respectful way, as you guys pointed it out, more than Pharaoh. And it resulted in, instead of thwarting God's plan, it thwarted Pharaoh's plan. I wonder how that directs us today. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff around us that we can fear, you know, and sometimes fearing God above our circumstances is fearful as well. And yet our God is one who can be trusted. He's the one who will bring us through our fears. Yeah, stark contrast between two types of fear. Pharaoh's fear of an Israelite uprising that drove him to murder babies, but the midwives' fear of God that led them to trust and obey, and ultimately, they saved countless lives. Well, you're listening to Discover the Word with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And in the next conversation, they'll look at another character in this story in Exodus 1 and 2, Uh, She is the mother who placed her son in a basket on the Nile River. What did it take for her to make a horribly difficult decision like that? We'll find out after this short message. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And Our Daily Bread Ministries has a lot of resources that can help you grow in your walk with Christ. I'd like to encourage you to check out one of those online on our website that I think you'll find helpful because some days, I mean, we wake up to a world of crystal skies and bright possibilities. And then other days, it's uh, getting up to rain pelting on our windows and thunder rattling our roofs. So how can we stay strong when the storms of life hit? Well, that's the topic of a video study from author and speaker Sheridan Voisey called Resilient. Sharon's been our guest here on Discover the Word before, and we certainly recommend that you watch this resilient Bible study for free on our Our Daily Bread YouTube channel. You'll find a link when you visit discovertheword.org. And now, person number four of these six who made a difference, Moses' mother. There is a saying that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. I'm sure you've heard of it. What does it mean? Well, I would answer that by giving an illustration of it. And uh, I've read that one of the most influential people of the last thousand years was Susanna Wesley, Mm. because her sons, John and Charles, and then her other children as well, who went on to be other folks who had great influence in their generation. 
really had a huge impact on the world, but that impact came from the way she mothered them as they were children. It's a great illustration. And you know, you guys, it leads right into where we're headed with this series. Um, Let me just give some background. That line is from a poem by a guy named William Ross Wallace, So, just so you know. But it is that, you know, a mom's influence is enormous in the life of her children and then through her children in her world and her environment. And we're looking at influence. We're looking at the influence of choices in this series we're doing, Six Who Made a Difference. And today we come to a mother who made a difference, Mm. a mother who made a difference. This is the story of the birth of Moses. In 32 verses, we see six people who made a difference through their choices. Sometimes their choices were very difficult and disastrous even. And sometimes the choices were salvific, brought about life for many. Um, We come to a mother, and this specific mother is in Exodus chapter 2, Just the first couple of verses, and then we'll pick her up in a kind of a parenthesis in the story. Who's this woman going to be? Well, her name's Jochebed. We're told that later in the book of Exodus, but uh, she's going to be Moses' mom. Okay, she is. Okay, can one of you give us the setting? What has been happening in this period in Israel's history? And I'm going to call her Jochebed. That's how I was taught to say it. And I want to make everybody out there comfortable who was also taught to say it that way. You know, what is the setting in which Jochebed is living? Pretty dark. Um, Mm -hmm. Pharaoh is afraid of Israel because they've gotten so big within Egypt's borders. Mm -hmm. And out of fear has enslaved them and then tried to kill all of the baby boys to try to keep the population down. But it keeps growing instead. And by the end of chapter one, we see that he commands his people, any Hebrew boy that's born, throw them into the Nile and just let the girls live so that we can stop this population growth and specifically avoid any military from recruiting from within Egypt, these Hebrew boys. Yeah, he was afraid of insurrection, wasn't he? And the boys are the ones who go to war eventually as men, yeah. Pharaoh made disastrous choices. And you just wonder, I mean, if you sit with that for just a second, how many babies were lost because Mm -hmm. of his choices. And then we looked at two midwives that Pharaoh tried to use to kill the babies who refused, and they instead feared God and let the babies live. And you wonder how many babies survived because of their choices. All of this is the backdrop for another baby being born to a woman named Jochebed. So let's read verses 1 through 3 of Exodus 2 and see this section of Moses' birth story. Go, Bill. Okay. Exodus 2, uh, verse 1. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. This story is so familiar to so many of us from Sunday school or different times Mm -hmm. we've been taught. What pops out of you as we're putting it in the context of choices? You know, who is this woman? She's from what? Tribe of Levi. And even though it hasn't happened yet, eventually... The Levite tribe will become the priestly tribe. Mm -hmm. She has a baby. 
And when that baby is born, what does she notice? This is in verse two, when she saw that he was what? A fine baby, Hmm. which is funny because we talked about (laughs) how Moses is attributed with writing these first five books. So it's interesting that he's describing himself as, you know, now that I think about it, I was a pretty fine baby. And that was the reason my mom (laughs) saved me. (laughs) Yeah, in the NAS, it says he was beautiful. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) What's the implication of that? Yeah, it does mean beautiful and healthy. And, you know, it's interesting, we get some light on this passage when Stephen is talking in Acts chapter 7, telling the whole story of Moses. He repeats this kind of sentiment, and I think it's chapter 7, verse 20 Mm -hmm. of Acts, and he says he was no ordinary child. He was fine. You know, this, this kind of understanding. He was healthy and he was fine. And I think what I'm looking at there is that he was so vital you know, maybe even loud, (laughs) that she knew that eventually she couldn't hide this child any longer as he got to being three months old, and she needed to Hmm. make a plan. At this point, had Jochebed had any other children? What do we know from other parts of scripture about her? Was she a brand new mother, or was she more seasoned? She was seasoned, wasn't she? Yeah, I think so. Well, we're going to see further in this passage that she already has a daughter, Mm -hmm. and we'll look at her in the next couple of days. But I think she also has a son, and that's revealed later on in the book of Exodus, Aaron. Mm -hmm. So Moses is actually her third child. And so he's beautiful, he's healthy. They were fond of him, that he was cared for, that he was loved, that he was wanted. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Elisa, because, I mean, you know, in the eyes of a mother, wouldn't her child be beautiful? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, through those eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) We've heard that before, (laughs) right? Right. Yeah, I think that's important. He was very desired. And so she understands at three months of age that she can't hide him any longer. And so what provisions does she make for him? Yeah, she puts him in a basket. I, I, what is she thinking? I mean, I'm I trying know. to put myself in. What was she thinking? Mm-hmm. And yeah. this word for basket actually is the same word that we see earlier in Scripture for ark. And we know that God preserved his people through Noah's building an ark and coating it with the same kind of pitch and tar water prevention leakage kind of substance before she put him into the Nile. It does Mm. seem preposterous, Mm. doesn't it? Yeah, I'm serious. What was she thinking? What did she think Mm. would happen? I mean, we know what happens. We're not told why she does what she does, but I've read some people who've said that she knew what Pharaoh's daughter's schedule was and what she normally did and that she normally came out and so she put the baby in the basket with the intent of hoping that pharaoh's daughter would find the baby we don't know that but it's possible well we haven't read the rest of the story yet and we're going to look at pharaoh's daughter in the next conversation and then at the sister but as you look at this the rest of this passage you're going to see kind of a a carefully laid out plan a time of day when Pharaoh's daughter would go to bathe, a sister watching at a distance, likely because her mother had instructed her to, you're going to see this plan. And because it is the word ark, and because it is a waterproof basket that she puts her baby into, and because she knows that Moses is going to be found out at some point if she doesn't do something 
thing. Again, like Bill said, there is this, I'm going to make some choices Mm -hmm. here to preserve life, whereas uh, Pharaoh's trying to kill off these babies. Okay, so the alternative then would be that she put it in the current and let it go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she didn't do that, did she? Or continue to hide him. But I mean, if she put it in the rushes, that doesn't mean that it's going to float down the river, right? Right. True. I mean, if she's got a plan and she knows the schedule of Pharaoh's daughter, then she must have put the child in a specific place that mm-hmm. she thought that the daughter would come upon it, if that's the right scenario. Has it ever hit you that, you know, Pharaoh had decreed that all of the male babies be put into the Nile? Has it ever hit you that there was actually a kind of a weird obedience in Jacobed's action? I'm obeying him technically, but I'm actually saving my child. It was Moses went into the Nile. The letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, right? She followed the rule. Clever and shrewd, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That's really good. She was smart in what she did, wasn't she? And maybe at the end of the day, she was just at the absolute end of herself and didn't know what to do. And that was the first thing that came to mind. And because one of the themes already that's come out of these conversations is the fact that God can use our decisions, good and bad. And sometimes we make, as we talked about in our very first conversation, very what we think are insignificant decisions that end up having consequences that are much bigger. So maybe at the end of the day, she didn't know what else to do and just created a basket and put tar on it and put the baby in the reeds and prayed, Lord, help me. Mm-hmm. We're going to see in our next conversations that God does preserve the life of this baby. We're going to see that uh, Pharaoh's daughter steps in, um, Moses' sister steps in, and that Jochebed actually is given this baby back to nurse, even paid as a nurse to provide for him and to be with him for several years of his life. Jochebed made a choice, and you're bringing it out so beautifully. Did she know this baby would be preserved? Did she trust God to preserve this baby? We're not told everything, but what we're told is that she made this gesture, and as a result of relinquishing this child into the river, God brought him back out. And as God brought Moses back out, he eventually would bring the Hebrew people out of slavery. There's something incredibly foreshadowing to me in Jacobed's decisions, to Mary's decisions in the life of her son to relinquish Jesus into the hands and authorities to even death on a cross that would bring life for all of us. There's something in this choice to relinquish, trusting that deliverance and provision would come from it. Everybody here in our conversation, all of us right here together, we all have a daughter, don't Mm -hmm. we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some of us had daughters-in-law as well. And I can remember becoming a parent to my firstborn as a daughter. I can remember having these great hopes, dreams, visions for her future. What have you hoped for, dreamed for, prayed for for your daughters? For me, I prayed for a daughter. Yeah, <laughs> um, really. When Rebecca and I first got married, and I think it's because I grew up with sisters and things like that, but I longed to have a little girl. That's precious. And mm-hmm. yeah, then we found out we were having our third boy. And if I'm honest, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> but then Ava Eliana came out instead of uh-huh. a third boy. And so my little song that God answers, that's what her name means. Uh-huh. Mm. 
Well, you know, whether you're praying for a, a son or a daughter, I find myself praying that their eyes would be open, they would see what's mm -hmm. important in life, that they would recognize how much they're loved, not just by mm -hmm. their mother and me, but by their God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, when our Beth, we have four sons and one daughter, and Beth is our second born. And uh, after her, we kept having sons. I remember thinking how much I wished that she had a little sister <laughs> because the boys had brothers and she needed a sister. And I remember when Mark was born, Beth was like 11. And I said, I know you're going to love your little brother, but it would have been nice if you could have had a sister. And she said, well, when they grow up and get married, I'll have sisters-in-law. Good for her. <laughs> so I'll get my sisters eventually. <laughs> That's a great perspective. It and is. Brian has a daughter as well. And But, you know, back to what we've hoped for, dreamed for, prayed for. I share what you said, Mart, you know, that they would know what to hope for themselves, that, mm -hmm. that they would live a life of full understanding of how much they're desired and wanted. But I'd even put it further, and maybe it came closer to this realization as my daughter entered her teen years is that they would make good choices <laughs> because mm -hmm. I, I came to understand how difficult that really is for all of us in life to make good choices, right? Yeah. And you know what else I'm thinking of? I'm thinking about those people that I know that don't have kids, but who, because of a niece or a nephew or because of the kids they take care of at church or something, they have those same prayers for mm -hmm. who they would call their kids, but they've kind of adopted spiritually these little ones that they can influence. And one in particular I'm thinking of, she prays for our kids. Mm. And so she prays some of those similar things. Don't we kind of project out what we long for even inside ourselves? Because we know the pain yeah. of making poor choices and we know the consequences of making poor choices. And we have in our loving Father, our Heavenly Father's uh, guidance and protection, we've seen how He can take care of us through our choices, you know, even in spite of them. And so when we look at the next generation and the next generation, we have this great compassion for good choices, don't we? Mm -hmm. We're in our fourth day in a series called Six Who Made a Difference, and we're looking at six individuals in 32 verses in the first two chapters in the book of Exodus, and looking at the significance of their choices how their choices rippled across their lives, the lives of those around them, and honestly, generations and generations and thousands of years forward in our history, our choices make a difference. We looked at a king who made poor choices. We looked at two midwives who really chose to fear God. We looked yesterday at, at a mother who chose to relinquish her son. Oh. <laughs> and today we're going to look at the daughter of the king hmm. and the choices she made. So this is Pharaoh's daughter. And I think it'd be good if we read her verses just in one little lump. And then let's look at who she might have been and why she might have made the choices she did and what difference those choices might have made. We're in Exodus chapter 2. And let's read verses 5 to 10. Daniel, would you start us? Sure. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. 
Okay, let's pause for just a second right there. What's happened? Jochebed, Moses' mother, has done what? She placed him in a basket that was sealed with pitch, uh, tar, and uh, put him in the Nile River, in the reeds, apparently somewhere near where this woman, Pharaoh's daughter, would be bathing. Because if she places him among the reeds, then it's not going to float away, right? Right. And he's around three months old, and he's become too big, noisy, for her to hide him any longer. And since Pharaoh's decreed that all of the male babies be thrown into the Nile, Jochebed needs to take some action. So this is what she sees as her choice that maybe Mm. would be helpful. And we'll talk about the sister in a next conversation who's standing at a distance watching to see what happens. But Pharaoh's daughter comes along. So what do we know about this young woman, um, Pharaoh's daughter? We don't really know her name. We have some possibilities suggested by commentators, but she's headed to bathe in the Nile. What kind of life would she be living? Who's she accompanied by? Yeah, she has multiple attendants, um, handmaidens, if you will, who are with her. As the daughter of Pharaoh, I mean, she lives the life of a royal. She lives a life Mm -hmm. of relative luxury in contrast to Moses' family who are living the lives of slaves. That's good. And so this attendants that we're told are with her maybe Hebrew slaves themselves. Um, And so she sends her female slave to get the baby. And they open the basket, and they see the baby, and he's crying. And how does Pharaoh's daughter respond? What emotion comes up do you see there in verse 6? Yeah, she took pity or had compassion on him. Okay, okay. My translation says that, yeah, she she felt sorry for him. Hmm. What do you think that means? Well, I got to her heart. She she felt something. Yeah, there was something that resonated there, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, she says this is one of the Hebrew babies in verse 6. How do you Mm. think she might have known that? Well, he's more than eight days old, and there's one way that the Hebrews at that point would be distinguished from circumcision. Okay, so she might have unwrapped him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or maybe he looks different than the Egyptian babies with the color of his skin or his hair or something like that, too. Yeah, she also knew what the situation was and what her father had been doing. And mm-hmm. so she finds a, a baby, I mean, what unusual circumstances. Mm. It seems to me like it would be pretty obvious that the Hebrews have hidden one of their own mm-hmm. to avoid him being killed. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Mart, what you're saying, because we saw yesterday that in a very ironic sense, Moses' mother was obeying the king by putting Moses in the river, which is what they were supposed to do. But the daughter of the Pharaoh is disobeying him by taking one out of the water. (laughs) In many ways, you could almost call her like the anti-Pharaoh in the story, right? She's the (laughs) protagonist where Pharaoh is the antagonist. You know, and to go to that, Daniel, do you think this young woman knew of the Hebrew God? I have no idea. Yeah, we don't know. I do know that later in the story, she invites the mom to be a part of Moses being raised, but uh, we don't know what her faith is at this point. If anything, we would probably assume that she may have heard of the Hebrew God, but probably would still worship Mm -hmm. the Egyptian many gods. Okay. But I think the idea of her being the anti-Pharaoh, and I don't want to read too much into this, but there's something almost rebellious in naming Mm -hmm. him Moses, I drew him out of the water. 
Because every time his name is said in Pharaoh's presence, there's something there, isn't there? <laughs> that is really good, Bill. And as the story continues in verses 8 through 10, we're going to see that this daughter actually does respond to the sister's suggestion, do you want me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse him? She does. And Moses' own mother, Jochebed, is brought forward, and Pharaoh's daughter pays her to nurse the baby. And that would probably mean that Jochebed takes him back home to nurse him for a couple of years and then does bring him forward. But it, the story ends right here with Pharaoh's daughter naming Moses. Mm-hmm. Moses, I drew him out of the water. The son of is also included in that designation, Moses, because they often have a prefix before that son of so and so. But it did mean I drew him out of the water. So she gets to name him that. You know, could one of y'all grab Acts 7, verses 20 to 21? Sure, I can get that for you. And this Acts 7 is Stephen's speech. When he's accused of uh, preaching Jesus, he preaches Jesus to them as kind of the culmination of Jewish history. And so he tells the Jewish story, and part of it is Moses' story, Verse 20, and it was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home, and after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And he was raised in all the wisdom of Egypt and brought forward. So this anti-Pharaoh woman, this daughter (laughs) of Pharaoh, brings forth this child who her father would have had killed. Whether or not she knew the God of the Hebrews or not, we don't know. But we know her choice was a choice for life and a choice for compassion and a choice to respond to the moment before her. And as a result, her choice was one that also moved to bring a child in deliverance out of the Nile, the very river that her father intended all of the Hebrew boys to die in. God would use this son to bring forth life for his people. It's quite a picture of redemption, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that choice would have ripple effects all throughout history, from Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery to the Savior of the world being born in a little town called Bethlehem. Well, that is person number five of these six who made a difference in Exodus chapters one and two. The final one is Moses' big sister, Miriam. Uh, What was her choice? That's what we'll discover after this word about our next Discover the Word podcast. One of the most mysterious ideas within the scriptures is the teaching that one God is three persons. And while the word Trinity doesn't appear in the scriptures, the idea of the Trinity is presented repeatedly. And next week, Bill will lead Mart and Elisa and Daniel in looking at various passages where we see that God in three persons idea demonstrated. We want to look at some scriptures where we see the three persons together. And we can't do what 2,000 years of scholarship has not been able to do. We can't unravel the mysteries of the Trinity. But we can look at some scriptures where we see them together in one place and see what they are doing collaboratively on our behalf and why the Trinity matters for us so personally. Yeah, don't miss God in Three Persons on the next Discover the Word podcast. 
And now the conclusion of this study of Exodus chapters 1 and 2 and 6, who made a difference. What's unique about the sibling relationship? What's unique about it? Yeah. (laughs) You can get away with a lot of stuff if you blame the right one. (laughs) I think I've said before that uh, one of my all-time favorite quotes came out of a thing called the Cynics Quote Book. And it said, the dream that all men should live as brothers is held by men who have no brothers. (laughs) (laughs) I've been surprised, and it hasn't really hit me until I've been older in life, but normally the sibling relationship is the longest relationship of our lives. Hmm. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is. You never think about that growing up. No, I Siblings can be the most loving to one another and also the ones that drive each other the most crazy. Yeah. It's amazing to me how much of a, can I even use the word jerk, that our Mm -hmm. kids can be to one another sometimes, but then they'll turn around in the same day and Mm -hmm. be like the kindest, most loving person to one another too. Yeah. Yeah. But usually it takes time, doesn't it? I mean, you can be really jerks for a long time, and then at some point Mm -hmm. you begin to mature, and then what you hope for and often see, I think, is a deep, close relationship develop. I think it's a confusing thing. You know, we don't become siblings as 30-year-olds, unless they're in-laws, you know. We become siblings as children. And so all kinds of emotions go on, you know, of of competitiveness, of uh, being displaced, of um, not understanding, of Mm. bullying. Even, you know, I can remember when we adopted our second-born child and my daughter, who was about 18 months old then, goes, when does he go home? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's confusing. It's a weird thing. We're talking about choices this week, Elisa. And the fact of the matter is, we don't have a choice about who our siblings are. That's right. That's right. The choice we have is how we choose to live with our siblings. Mm -hmm. So going back to your question, what is unique? Is it that what is unique is that uh, brothers growing up probably fight more with one another than they do with anybody else? Right. There's an intimacy there. A and freedom. Th- and maybe a freedom. And I think that's why in situations where there never is reconciliation between siblings, that's so painful and mm-hmm. so deep and kind of always sticks with you. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have that reconciliation with someone, you still long for it and hope for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it may never happen too. And in some ways that pain can be so deep when you don't have reconciliation with a sibling. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a piece missing. Mm-hmm. There's a hole in your family. But as Bill said, we're in a series on choices this week, and we've been looking at six individuals who made a difference with their choices. In 32 verses in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, we have seen so far five individuals. And let's just quickly review them because we want to spend some time on this last individual who was a sibling, a sister specifically, uh, to round this out. So remind us who we've seen so far. First, we saw a king. king. A yeah. king. And what kind of choice did he make? This was a bad one. Yeah. Not good. And this was Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, had forgotten the whole story, and, and became very threatened by the population explosion of the Hebrew Mm -hmm. people, and so decided to kill all the male Hebrew Mm -hmm. babies. Okay. And then we saw two uh, Hebrew midwives who made the choice to disobey the king who ordered the the death of all the male children, and they chose rather to be loyal to God and find creative ways to spare those lives. 
Good. And then we saw... The mother, huh? A horrible decision she had to make. Mm -hmm. She, at three months old, relinquished her son, we would know him as Moses, into Mm -hmm. the Nile, technically obeying the Pharaoh's edict, but very scarily doing so. And when the baby was discovered, she actually was invited to continue in his life as his wet nurse and was able to raise him for three years or so before she relinquished him further to be adopted. And so then the next person we saw in our last conversation was a daughter. And probably one of the biggest surprising characters in this story, because it's Pharaoh's daughter is the one who rescues this baby and also ends up naming one of the people we talk about in the Bible more than anybody else, Moses. And um, actually names him Moses because I drew him out of the water. Mm -hmm. And so you have this character who's kind of doing the opposite of what her dad wanted because she had compassion and pity for this baby that was crying. Whether or not she knew the God that this story is really about, we aren't told, you know, but her choice. So, so far, five people whose choices have made a difference. And we have one more to look at. And this individual is a sister, the sister of Moses. There's just two verses here, Exodus chapter 2, verse 4, and Exodus chapter 2, verse 7. Bill, Daniel, could each of you grab one of those and let's see what we learn about her. Yeah, after uh, Moses' mother puts him in the basket in the river to try to protect his life, actually, it says in verse 4 that his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. We've got a feeling that that was kind of planned, don't we? It seems that way. We have to imply it, yeah. Yeah, the text doesn't tell us that, but it sure feels like it. Good. Okay, and then verse 7. And she must have not been too far away because when Pharaoh's daughter has the baby pulled out uh, of the water, out of the basket, she has pity on him and the sister runs up or walks over or something (laughs) and says, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says yes to her. Can I just say that this sister almost seems like the definition of precocious? I mean, this is, a, this is a slave child, and it's the daughter of Pharaoh, and she just kind of pops out of the water and says, hi, nice baby, can I get you somebody to take care of him for you? You know, I mean, I, I just see this kind of bubbly That's personality cute. and just having no sense of fear at all, just stepping right up to royalty and saying what's on her mind. That's great, Bill. She's got two lines in this whole play, if you will. <laughs> you know, she's got two verses that describe her, and we're left trying to piece together who is this girl. So she is a Hebrew slave child. She's older than Moses, obviously. She just steps forward, and she takes action. Probably her mom kind of orchestrated it, and she does this at her mother's you know, instruction. But that's all we get to know about her. That's amazing, isn't it? But she's a key player in this story. Mm-hmm. Her choices make a difference between life and death for Moses. Mm -hmm. And not just for Moses. I mean, it goes on to impact the whole story of Israel from this point forward as Moses grows up in Pharaoh's home and then later becomes the person who leads Israel out of Egypt altogether. We see later in the book of Exodus, could one of y'all grab Exodus 15, 20, maybe Mart, you can grab that. We see later that her name is Miriam And she is a leader herself in this story with her brother, Moses. What does Exodus 15, 20 tell us, Mark? It tells us then Miriam, the prophet, 
That's interesting. Huh? Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Hmm. Precocious, Bill. <laughs> Precocious. <laughs> I look at Miriam, and I mean, you know, if you know the story of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, we do know that Miriam's life is not without its bumps in the road, that she does have some rough patches, but we see her in just this abandoned kind of putting herself at some level of risk to try to to help her little baby brother and help her mom. And then we see her step forward with an exuberance to give worship to God for their rescue at the Red Sea. I mean, she really is a fascinating character that maybe we don't hear enough about. So yeah, not all of Miriam's choices were perfect, but what we see of her here is she makes choices that God uses amazingly. I find it fascinating that this is one story of the birth of Moses, where six people are pointed out uniquely for the choices that they made and the part their choices played in his birth. Mm. The history of how Moses came to be involved a lot of choices. It makes me think back to all of my choices Mm -hmm. that God invites me into every single day. Sometimes my choices are not so great, and there are consequences for them. And yet God will still use them for his overall purposes. And sometimes my choices please him. And God uses them for his overall purposes. Hmm. What do you want to take forward from this consideration of six people who made a difference with their choices? One of the things that jumps out just from this story is the fact that you pointed out how small of a part that she plays at this point in the story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have no idea the small thing that we say or do to someone that ends up radically impacting who they are, who they become. Mm. Um, Even if it's just a kind word, sometimes to someone at the right time can make a huge difference in someone's life. And our choices, their choices really were, as we look at them now, also a part of God's story. And they were individual choices or choices together that either reflected well upon him Mm. and reflected his heart Mm. or reflected merely on themselves, as was the case with Pharaoh. Miriam probably had no idea that she herself would be a leader in such a way as we just saw. What she saw in that moment is she was stepping in, probably as instructed by her mother, to help save her brother. Mm. And that was the choice she made in that moment. But that choice made future choices to participate in God's work possible, didn't they? choices she made in helping to save her baby brother ended up being part of the story of how God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And what a great way to conclude this look at six people, six who made a difference there in the first couple chapters of the book of Exodus. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, that challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always points us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Discover the Word. I encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Now, our mission and all we do here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. 
And if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us in this ministry, we invite you to lend your financial support. Simply go online to discovertheword.org and click the Donate button. You'll see some options and you can give right there. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.